The main podcast is a free media source with a mission to provide better transparency in the market to connoisseurs, medical patients, recreational users, store owners, growers, extractors, and everyone in between. This is made possible through generous support from our sponsors who cover all corners of the great state of Maine. Special thank you goes out to Treeline Cannabis, Planet Tim, Watered Roots, Rugged Roots, The Head of Yeti, Tastefully Baked, Cure Cannabis, The Shack 420, Humble Family Farms, Canamelts, Salty Cultivation, The North Fire, Highbrow, Team Green, Seaworks & Co., Bade Space, Zero Gravity Extracts, Wisely Cannabis, and Stoner & Co. For more information on how you can support those who support us, please visit our website, www.mainpodcast.com, and click our Sponsors tab. Okay, so to ask the most important question. Turn that around. Almost there. Right out of the gate. What do podcasts have to worry, be worried about? What kind of legal sound advice should we be getting? <laughs> oh this is a paid promo. <laughs> Just kidding. Unless you want to answer it on the surface. Only that it have a 21 and over warning. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's fair enough. I would okay. think. Should we backdate that? Right. <laughs> Should we go ahead through all of our archives and make sure that all of them This was recorded now? before? Yeah. Right. Yep. I think we have. Haven't we? Haven't we? What? Well, we have 21 and up on our Instagram. We just don't market. Hold on. Our, to access our Instagram, you have to be 21 and over. Our Facebook, I'm not. I think I selected that option. Damn, now you got me thinking, Jill. Right, I know. Oh, man. She does that. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about some interesting stuff, diving into the new revisions, uh, the new draft rules that kind of came out. Um, and some of the things we wanted to highlight are obviously what's really going to affect caregivers, um, local ones, maybe ones that probably even like you represent. What are some of the big things that you're hearing right now, like for concerns? I think initially, right when the rule came out, every married couple I represent gave me a call, concerned that they would no longer be able to work together. Um, <clears throat> so we had to talk through some of those issues. I think the security requirements were pretty onerous and probably would have had a significant impact on a lot of caregivers had they had to bear that expense. I think we're going to get a, a, sh a little shift there that should help. Um, what else? So you're, they're going to be required to have some additional, but it's not going to be to the same extent as what was in the literature. I hope we're going to see it significantly reduced. Um, I'm told that it will be reduced. Mm -hmm. But what was in the proposed rule was an adult use standard. That's a huge expense, and to require that of somebody growing 30 plants or 500 square feet just made no sense. And then you throw in people caregiving at home. Mm. I mean, nobody wants that type of surveillance at their house. No, not at all. At least I don't. Is it with facial recognition? <laughs> Did I hear well that? Is that there any truth to that rumor? Yes, there's going to be DNA samples. No, <laughs> um, they're going to implant the chip. <laughs> um, no, oh, that got me good. It was pretty heavy. <laughs> you know, it was pretty heavy requirements on the security side. Um, and I think the transport requirements are pretty intricate. Um, when you're going on a track and trace system, that should be streamlined, mm -hmm. I think. And, you know, I think people were concerned about annual audits and what does that mean and 
of course, the advertising and packaging has been the subject of a lot of recent discussion um, based on one of the high-profile stores uh, yes. getting called out for their logo. And so I think, you know, and I had the opportunity, fortunately, to have a few discussions with OMP between when the rules came out and now. And I, I definitely see them shifting their policy here and there where they can. Um, they're boxed in quite a bit by the law, the way it, it's written and enacted by the legislature. So I definitely think through this process, it's highlighted areas where the laws need to change um, so that it's cleaner and it makes more sense and less onerous. Um, one of the things we were talking about in the pre-show is the issue is not that medical is under-regulated, it's that adult use is over-regulated. Mm. So you have the adult use program, they have their lawyers and lobbyists, and they've got their overhead and goals that they're trying to meet, and that program does exist, so those concerns are valid. And then you have the dispensary crew, which comes with its own issues mm. um, and its own uh, interests as far as trying to dominate on the medical side. And then you have this huge group of um, really talented, passionate, main caregivers who created this program and developed it and it's really born off of their hard work and you know I think many of them and rightfully so see it getting encroached on by overregulation at the state level so you know for me I would love to see the level of regulation on the adult use side reduced and we find sort of a happy middle um, you know, we're still dealing in a federally prohibited substance today. Mm -hmm. And that always lingers in the background of everything, even though... On the types of actions that the state governments are going to take in response? Yes. Or t as a protective measure on their behalf? Well, I do think it keeps us, you know, operating in a very highly regulated environment until something changes at the federal level. If you look at probably every local ordinance that has been enacted for adult use and um, to adopt these new medical uses. It includes like an indemnification clause, indemnifying mm. the town from uh, any liability should there be some sort of federal enforcement action at some point. Mm -hmm. You know, landlords also have provisions in all of these commercial leases that if something were to change on the federal level, they can pretty much kick you out with very little notice. Mm. So I think until, you know, until that is gone as an obstacle, what we the market we all really want to see can't happen, um, and I think under this new administration, there's I have really high hopes that very soon we'll see passage of the Safe Banking Act, which will give cannabis businesses broad access to banking like never before. Um, and if that's all that gets accomplished under this administration, I think we would all be happy. Mm, I don't that would know. Be a big step. What about like huge. a the coal? You remember the coal memorandum that was? I do. Do you think there's a potential of something like that being enacted again? Because that would really lower the risk of caregivers being investigated by right. the federal government. Remember the coal memo, Andy? I remember it very fondly. <laughs> Want to speak on what it pertains to, just yeah. for those who don't know? So the coal memo, and Andy Shorthand has a version? better memory of than I do, but it came out of banking, it came out of two directions, the FinCEN, the financial guidance from Department of oh, whatever. <laughs> um, but anyway, it came about during the Obama administration, and it was a way to sort of say to the federal government, we're not going to use resources to prosecute state legal cannabis businesses um, so long as certain 
uh, things are met, so long as you're not trafficking over state lines. A short <laughs> list of bad actor yes. things that you could do. A short list of things, that maybe eight. That, it uh, was eight. If actually. you don't do any of this stuff, and if you're compliant, you're okay. you need to do local. Right. So if, right. You, if you don't sell to kids, if you don't sell across state lines, if you don't Supply. divert product yeah. and support gang activity, right. you know, wow. it was don't launder money, pay your taxes. Like, it was, it was eight things, and... It was put in place both on the, like for the IRS side and another in two different departments, uh, Department of Justice. Uh-huh. Well um, and so we actually had the opportunity to hear the guy that drafted the Cole Memo speak at a seminar several years ago in Colorado, and it was really fascinating to listen to how that came about. But w- with that in place, me- particularly medical operations, but also adult use states, were able to sort of operate and sleep at night, um, knowing that federal funds were not going to be expended to mm. prosecute marijuana crimes st- for state legal operations. So then Trump gets elected, and the Cole memo is um, repealed, and nothing really changed. Um, as until a matter- it did. And, well, yes, until it did. But... That impacted a lot of growers out in California, did it not? They were subject to federal raids at that point for different purposes, not all of them necessarily justified, it felt like, because those were a massive number of raids. Yeah, the West Coast is a whole different ballgame. Okay. Um, They make a lot of bad law, I'll say. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're the pioneers, you know, Colorado, California, you know, the lawyers that represent the dispensaries on the West Coast have um, really done the heavy lifting for the industry. Oh, they've made case law with the uh, IRS enforcement actions. Yeah, good and bad. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there has been a great deal of enforcement in California, but I think a lot of it's related to people operating without licenses and not going through the licensing process right. once one was available. <laughs> Because I remember um, seeing a report saying how many cannabis businesses, like it was like an outrageous uh, percentage right. in like L.A. County alone or something was like uh, illegally operating. And you saw there was some enforcement uh, raining down on weed maps for facilitating a lot of these unlicensed mm. cannabis businesses in California. And you really saw them kind of buttoning up their operations. And um, now on weed maps, you see everybody's um, license number uh, yeah. displayed on the on the front page, which wasn't always the case. And so they're at least doing some amount of verification, although I don't know how they're verifying here in Maine because your caregiver status is confidential, but whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 that's funny you said that because when we, we helped out a couple of stores and one of them, when we did it, there was no verification. Like you just put it in and I said, I looked over, I was like, I'm pretty sure we could have just entered our birth date, you know, and they would have taken that. Like it, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of verification going on. I think that's probably right, particularly on the caregiver side. Now, on the adult use side, you can verify that on the Office of Marijuana Policy website. So Mm -hmm. I would hope they're at least doing that due diligence. I mean, for their sake, you know, the feds were all over them. Um, But, yeah, I think, though, mostly in the day-to-day, particularly in Maine, because we've been working here since before the Cole Memo was repealed, I I didn't see a huge difference here. Um, I think maybe... You know, it's the reason other credit unions didn't get in the game. Um, maybe you see Seaport trying to raise fees back when Cole Memo got repealed. Yeah, right. Um, but it, the day-to-day, I don't think it really impacted many people here. And you still see Cole Memo language on marijuana commercial leases. Um, 
particularly on those, they have like a marijuana rider and it tracks coal memo language and I still see it on leases and it's like, okay, you know. So that's so the type of adopted business. It might not be what it is, but, but uh, that's, that's what's been adopted for here in Maine as a stance. Because yes. they haven't fully really, as far as going into locations, I mean, they've been, they haven't been overbearing in, in, in acting what they've put in place feels like to me are you talking about office marijuana yeah policy? right um well with people coming coming <clears throat> those who visit your uh location whatever it yeah. is i don't know are people getting visited way too often or if i've well, never heard anybody complain <laughs> nobody does complain i had one client who was visited three times in a very short span of time in early 2020 and it was not complaint based um i think the inspector was like yeah i live nearby um, you know, <laughs> but it was all very positive interactions. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking before the show about the large number of caregivers that were inspected in 2020, um, probably over a thousand. And it was because OMP was doing virtual inspections for a time. So they were able to do multiple in a day. And then they had, you know, they have a lot more investigators now as they filled those positions. But so many of our clients got inspected and, um, I don't know of anybody that had a negative experience with that. You know, did we have some people who needed to fix some things and provide some additional documentation? Yes. But through that process, we really learned, like, the expectation was set. And so as I was saying earlier, some of what came out when the medical rule came out was not a huge surprise. Um, we had seen this coming, well, first because OMP kept saying medical rules are coming, for a law that was enacted in 2018 and because of like the checklist they would send out to caregivers in advance of their inspection um, it contained a you know a decent sized list of what they were looking for so going back to my example of married caregivers when they were inspected they knew because the inspector was saying hey i need to see your each of your sales logs you know you need to keep separate sale, sales logs you have to account for your plant count and so, you know, to get a rule that then said caregiver activities have to occur as sole proprietors was not a huge surprise. Um, and I think, you know, it's just something that people need to look at when they're putting their businesses together. OMP's position is they're not authorized to license medical caregiver companies. They license people. Mm. And so they don't have really a vetting of a corporate structure on the caregiver side. Right. You mentioned the rules and in 2018, and I think would some people might just be a little bit confused. These are ones that we essentially voted for, correct? No. I, if only that... <laughs> <laughs> if only the law looked like what the voters probably expected it to be, and I know what many caregivers expected it to be back when they voted for it in 2016. Um, when Maine legalized in 2016, um, the law went through significant revision after that point uh, with various influences all the way around, including the Marijuana Legalization Implementation Committee, which was formed to make recommendations to the legislature and to put it all together. And now here we are with, um, with the adult use program and then the changes in the medical rule. And just to remind you, those changes were huge in 2018 to medical specifically, because that's when um, the patient designation went away, the five patient limit. Yeah, right. You could cycle. You could wholesale um, to each other all of a sudden, have any number of caregiver assistants. I mean, it, 
there was no more narrow list of qualifying conditions. You could be prescribed cannabis for any condition that the medical provider thought cannabis could alleviate it. And so that's when you saw businesses just scaling overnight, particularly mm -hmm. the wholesaling. Right. Initially, if you remember, the wholesaling law was you could only wholesale 30% and mm -hmm. you had to sell 70%. And then within a few months, it quickly, the law was changed to the 75-25 that, that has been in place, I think, since spring of 2019. And that's when all of a sudden you see this caregiver community that's so tight-knit, that's been doing business with each other now since the spring of 2019, and really just building businesses um, that nobody could have ever imagined would grow out of a small mom-and-pop caregiver operation. Mm -hmm. Some of these people are staying in medical now. Some are going to be in both programs, in medical and adult use. Um, and some will just transition to adult use. But, you know, once a caregiver operation gets of a certain size, you know, realistically, they should be looking should at become. options um, to either become a dispensary <clears throat> on the medical side or to go to the adult use program or both. Um, so anyway, that's a long way around about the rules. I could talk about the rules all, all night. Um, that's what we have you here for. <laughs> Does it almost feel, though, Jill, that the fight is a little too late? Welcome to the main podcast. For those of you who are listening to this at 2 a.m. in the morning, well, what the hell's wrong with you? I mean, yeah, sure. Things are a little bit crazy, but hey, this is our infomercial time. I want to talk about the Heady Yeti. It's a friend of ours, Jake, who's been highly supportive of the main podcast and the ventures that we've went into here, even with Terps and Lewiston. And it's been so supportive through through the years that we've known each other. We met when uh, I was over at Cincinnati, but we knew of each other uh, before that, and that was uh, 2018. Um, he he's always been around product. He's always been around flour and extractions, and he presses hash, and, and he's going through the process right now of being a cultivator here in the Lewiston area, a full time where it's you know an undertaking that he's been wanting to do for a while. Sometimes you don't get there as, you know, when everybody else is, you're, you're doing different things. And, and uh, he, he had a chance to make a choice. Is this what he wanted to do? And, and he loves it. He's been doing some fabulous things over there. It's a learning curve just like it was for everybody. Still is for everybody. But what Jake's got is Jake's got heart and desire. And that's the kind of thing. And, and, he, and he's a good friend. He's just loyal to you if you're loyal to him in return. You know, and that's all you can ask for from him from the people you want to surround yourself with in life. So this is a shout out to Jake, the Heady Yeti. And we can't wait to see your products down the road on shelves in our main medical craft stores in the future. Best to you and thanks for supporting the main podcast. Because it seems like what you're saying is even if you do bring the fight to OMP, OMP really can't do much now. All they're doing is essentially following the rules that were enacted by the legislature in 2018. Correct. But um, no, I don't think the fight's ever too late. And I think already what's gone on with 1,500 responses via written public comment, the numerous dozens of phone calls I know OMP had with stakeholders because I was fortunate to be on at least three different calls. Oh, great. Um, the different groups, the grassroots organizations like um, the Maine Cannabis Coalition, Maine Craft Cannabis Association, Maine Cannabis Industry Association, they all um, 
I know the um, medical marijuana caregivers of Maine, like every group um, that has organized had at least I'm had one, maybe two or more phone calls with OMP. So they took a lot of time. And I think it's, like I said, I think it's highlighted areas um, where the rule as written overstepped and created law. And it's also highlighted areas where I think we need to go back to the legislature and change some laws. So that is a, that is a possibility. Of, it's always a possibility. There are probably several dozen uh, bills pending with the word marijuana in them for mm -hmm. this upcoming legislative session. Wow. Um, and some are sponsored by Maine Cannabis Coalition. Some are sponsored by Office of Marijuana Policy. And, you know, legislatures with other influences bringing bills um, for consideration by the legislature. So, you know, so we'll have the rule that will go in place. And it's... We'll all still have another public hearing on that rule before it goes into place, and then there will be many months for everybody to get compliance. So it's not like they flip a switch once the rule goes in place and everyone's expected to be compliant within 72 hours. It won't be that. It'll be over a matter of months um, because certainly the biggest piece of what's about to happen and probably the most anxiety-making part is going on track and trace, and that's going to take several months to roll out to the medical side. Um, and I think that's just going to be no fun. And, you know, change is hard, and this is a big one. And But it's in the law. There's nothing short of, you know, changing the law, which, of course, might happen. Seems like a long shot to me, though. Um, so I think track and trace is an inevitability um, that hopefully everybody's getting ready for. I know a lot of my clients are, you know, looking down uh, the road to this and are identifying an employee or two that are going to, carry that load and learn metric and train everybody else because, you know, metric is not built for, it's not built for us. It's not built for you. It's not built for caregivers. Mm. Um, it is built to please state regulators. And that's why metric gets state contracts um, and why it's used in nearly every state. So, you know, if you just know that going into it, you won't be surprised when it's cumbersome or not intuitive for cultivation or retail <laughs> And that's why you want to, a lot of operators are going to want to seek out their own third-party solution um, because there's plenty of software providers out there that make a product that talks to metric that can make that job so much easier. Mm. And is it an expense? Yes, it is. Um, but, you know, to spend the money to kind of onboard a seed-to-sale system internally or a POS system if you're running a retail store, I think operators are going to find that that pays off not only in you know, kind of a smooth pathway to metric compliance, but also in really understanding your business. For the first time ever, you know, I think most operators soon will be able to tell you how much it costs them to produce a gram of weed. I mean, I would challenge many of them to be able to tell anybody that. I think most people don't know. Mm. And once you start having real data about what you're producing and where, you know, where it's going and how much of it is going out as flour and how much you're sending out to be processed and you know, your margins. Um, There's a lot of paths that yes. it takes for somebody to be all over just where yeah. the revenue and what the costs are yes. that come from all of those directions. Yeah, that's, Yeah. I and think some are exploring it. Some could tell you how much it costs on a cultivation level. Maybe not down to the dollar, but enough experience has taught them, you know, money in, money out, how it all works out, what that cost produce. Uh, they're at least aware of what, what it is. Absolutely. I'm always amazed <clears throat> at the knowledge contained in the mind of a cultivator, mm. um, how they can just sort of, they can rattle that off. 
You're right. Should um, should growers who are say like they have uh, capability of making in a gross sense profit, say three hundred thousand dollars, like one room of thirty lights, and that's what their growing capability is. So break that out, call it five harvests in a year. That that kind of number. Um, just playing it out for numbers. Could they afford track and trace? Well, I mean, the bare an internal program. Yeah, because it's sure. all to, it's kind of to scale in a sense. It is. Right. It is okay. So if you're small, your bills because a lot of it, like Jill, where does the biggest expense come in with track and trace? Is it those tags, and is that what really is is going to kill a larger provider? Obviously, I mean they can offset it because they're bigger, so they should be in theory producing more. But that's really what is the biggest expense to the track and trace program is the is like the RFID tags, correct? Oh, I would think the tags are small in comparison to the man hours, the human input into running a track and trace program. I mean, those tags have to be put on and the information has to be maintained. I think the human cost is probably higher than everything else. Maintained right. on what, a daily the- daily entry? Updating every night by 11.59. Yeah, and just every making night. sure that that's all mo- moving smoothly. And that's right, so why- that can add employees already to the overhead too. So even, yeah, I never even, when I was, when I tried to break some of the stuff down, I always just thought of the, like the physical material cost. I guess I never even factored in the, like the expense of a whole other employee or potentially department, I guess, depending yes. on the size of your operation. I always recommend that if you have an operation of any size that you have an inventory manager and that they are kind of your end all be all for metric. And, you know, I think OMP has tried to put some things in place to make it easier, like batch tagging and it's $40 a month to access the portal. So, I mean, if you don't onboard your own third party solution on your end, your expense would be relatively low other than the, man hours for an employee. Right. Um, That's going to be your biggest expense far and away. And, you know, I think to implement um, your own system, a third-party solution probably is just an incremental expense that's worth it because it's going to cut those man hours because your your third-party solution is going to talk to metric. And hopefully that's going to be smooth. Um, It makes everything a little bit more efficient. Yes, I think it takes that down. Yeah from a over full-time job to something way more manageable. Something that more, like, it doesn't have to just be a sole responsibility of, like, one person. It's it's more adaptable right. to that others can use the software and understand it as well. And it should, at a certain point, mostly run itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that husband and wife uh, caregiver, um, their concerns about perhaps needing to split the business. But uh, what about, like, could they, those style caregivers... Can they absorb, they'll they'll be able to absorb it for the here and now? Is that going to be a cost that's going to scare them off? I I think it's a combination of the cost and the time. Every cultivator I know is working really hard. Already. You know, and they're already... It's a lot of one and two person operations out there with a third every once in a while. That's right. And then you have the trimming crew that gets hired on. So that's about it. I mean, there are larger businesses, no doubt. Sure. But, uh, but I think part of what we're hoping to prevent is uh, an elimination of those one, two caregiver operations. I hope that as people get more used to working with the system, that it won't be such a heavy lift, but 
you know, yes, if you're a two-person, three-person small operation, I think initially it's going to be a big time suck. Mm-hmm. Um, and then hopefully it'll become something very routine that will just be sort of woven into the fabric of your business. Yeah. Um, and I think they've tried to have it be at a level that is accessible for the small business. Listen, Maine's built on small craft businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what Andy and I love about Maine is that, you know, like the craft beer and the foodie scene. And I, ex- I have always expected Maine cannabis to go the same way. And so you have to preserve the opportunities for the small craft growers so that you get that really nice small batch that shows up in the store every now and then and everybody looks for it. And uh, when's it going to drop? And I mean, we all know who those brands are that you're like, oh, I just want to make sure that I grab it while it's in while it's in the store. <laughs> and, you you're know, such a heady. I know. Right. <laughs> but but it really is like that. Is it comparable to you've got a lot of locally brewed beer. Or you've got local restaurants that have their own flavor. There is cannabis that's being produced here. That is, it's not just niche. It's uh, it's craft in a way that it could only be because it's not being mass produced. It's mm-hmm. a small grow. Oh, you're so there's, right. There's a special quality to uh, to what's being to grown what here. we're having, yeah. to what we're able to enjoy these last two years. I on totally a full, full yeah. spectrum for the whole state. I totally fangirl many brands, ones I represent and ones I don't, mm-hmm. and I definitely. You know, when I go to stores, I, I look at everybody's weed maps menus and, you know, and I've always been that way. Andy will tell you, whenever we're in a legal state, any of the legal states, I pre-shop them on weed maps. I have my favorite brands in every <laughs> I'm state. I'm bored. I want to do something else. Andy like, doesn't. You, again, with, again, you <laughs> he, want to go to the weed he store? He does not ever <laughs> want to go to the weed store. He, you don't? You don't want to bother, Andy? Well, it depends on like where we've gone. Uh-huh. But uh, we travel a lot to... Uh, parts of the country where it's readily available okay. and legal. Yep. And sometimes I feel like we've gone somewhere for some other purpose. <laughs> and if we've already got something, you know, I'm kind of over the novelty of I can go do this. I came here, I'm in Nevada, I came here to gamble. I went wherever, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't come here to go wait in line at a, at a store, at you know. Planet 13. And, it, and it's a long, <laughs> it, her favorite place. it's a, uh, a drawn out process. Retail yeah. and a lot of other places, uh, you're investing some time in it. And if you've traveled somewhere to have a good time, uh, you know, he has no patience. How for much the time lines. do you want to spend in a store? And how much <laughs> do you like stores here? I love the stores here. It's a, it's, it's totally different, different, isn't it? Because it's, it's totally quaint, different. it's different. It's just unique to every environment. It's I went to a new store decided. the other night. Yeah. You did? Yep, I went to a new South Portland store the other night, and it was really nice. What's it called? I'll give him a shout out. It, I went to Elevate. Yep. To check it out. And mm-hmm. It was really nice. Nice people. Nice little shop. Had you um, been uh, with them before? They have yeah. a delivery service, right? No, yeah, no, I had never. I I just wanted to go somewhere I hadn't been. Yeah. Um, and so I went to check it out. And you know they just opened, so I like to be supportive and just yeah. go and hit it up and check it out. What'd you grab? Um, oh my gosh. Do you have a flavor? Do you guys have flavors that you look for? No. What, what do you gravitate towards? Or no, not no, necessarily. You know, no. I wish I could say I was that sophisticated at this point. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that I'd name a strain, but uh, definitely hybrid that's just the least bit indica dominant. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, a l- little bit over the line with relax instead of get up and, and run. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's where I find myself. Yeah. Still very productive, still doing what you want to be doing. We yeah. talked a little, too, uh, before we got on 
about like the disconnect that you say that you're seeing right now and it's pretty sad for like you mentioned portland and some other places that's just they're small cities it's small government in maine everywhere you go and that there's a remarkable amount of disconnect on this issue and it, it when you mentioned earlier about there being i believe like a dozen or half dozen bills that are being proposed in the legislature i haven't heard about any of them and i'm not like a well-versed in it but it almost seems like unless you are uh, you know, a hundred percent in ten toes down on the subject, mm. you're not going to really know anything that's going on. Cause how would we even know to call our local legislator right now and say, Hey dude, that bill that's going through that don't represent the people that you represent. I don't want that to get passed. And I'm going to have 15 other people from Lewiston call you and say, don't vote for that. Yeah. I, I say all the time, you know, I'm not a lobbyist and, but inevitably with the nature of things in Maine right now and, with us representing, you know, we represent clients, not causes, but these are issues that are so important to the vast majority of our clients that we've sort of become de facto lobbyists. Mm. And it is really hard to keep up with it. It's really hard to keep up with things when things are on the agenda for these towns. You know, there's 400 towns in Maine, and even just to keep up with the planning board meeting schedules as they're enacting these ordinances is nearly impossible. But what I recommend to everybody is you find an organization that aligns with your values and you support that organization because not everybody has the time or the desire to read 40 bills that are going before the legislature. But if you're a cultivator and you're part of maybe Maine Growers Alliance and you all have shared values and you can support them financially and they'll move forward issues that are important to you. Same with, with Dawson's Group, same with Maine Craft Cannabis. Um, Maine, and Maine Cannabis Industry Association. I mean, they they all have their flavor. And so you find one that aligns with your values. And believe me, every one of those organizations has somebody watching all of these bills. Um, and some of the organizations have lawyers and lobbyists that are in the mix um, whose sole job it is to track the bills. I can't keep up with it either. Um, it's It's really hard because, you know, our clients are my primary focus all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that takes away from my ability to really focus on what my clients need. Um, the week the medical rules came out was just a total wash. You know, I apologize to my client group for all of, all of the things that went undone that week. But, you know, it was important. And yep. so, you know, we sort of um, reprioritized to make sure that we're able to um, – have a voice on behalf of our client group as well. And I do think it had a huge impact, everybody's actions. Um, it was heard loud and clear, and it's, it continues to be heard loud and clear. And I think it's, it is really important. If this is your living, if this is how you feed your kids and keep a roof over your head, you definitely want to take the time mm. to know what's going on in the industry and support people who share your values. Even beyond that, too, we were just talking with Mark Rodriguez from Rogue Sportswear. He was on the podcast, and he, he blatantly said, he said, I don't know what I would have done without the cannabis industry. He goes, at a time where every single event in Maine was getting canceled, everything else was going down the shitter, this was the one time where – the cannabis industry was reinvesting in themselves. They finally were seeing high profits. You know, the stimulus, it, you were spending it on weed or booze, and regardless of your feeling on it, it trickled back down into the main economy. We also had high peak cannabis, and she was a wedding cake designer, and she made a wedding cake baker. She made a lot of wedding cakes. She had, uh, you know, 80-something percent of her weddings cancel for 2020. Mm -hmm. She's like, the only reason I, I have a home still is because of the cannabis industry, because I transitioned and started high peak. 
So, I mean, like, I think it goes way farther than just the cannabis industry. And we talk about a lot that a lot of these businesses, it's time to let your community know that, hey, the support that we've given to you, we can't continue to give it to you unless you give us some support back this time. And the only way we're going to do that is with a phone call, you know, or an email. You got to let them know that this also affects my business and I don't even grow cannabis. I don't sell cannabis. I, I'm a real estate agent. I'm a commercial exactly. broker. I'm a, a baker. I make clothes, you know, those type of industries, all of them are going to see the effects, I think, of, of really what's happening here in Maine. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, one of the, speaking of ancillary businesses, I told you before, one of the things I told OMP after the rule came out was, you know, this is sure a win for lawyers. I mean, <laughs> wow, yeah. I don't need the business. But, you know, it, it takes something that should be so simple, like a 30 plant grow or 500 square feet and sort of makes it so everybody feels compelled to get a lawyer. I mean, our our phone was blowing up that week with people just really worried about being compliant and not people complaining about the rule. I mean, they were, but at the same time, they're like, hey, whatever it is, I, I have to figure out how to do this. Um, and I think you have a lot of people, you know, railing against the rule and, and lobbying and doing all the things, but the, you also have a lot of people who are just like, I am just trying to run my business here and I'm putting one foot in front of the other and, mm -hmm. you know, however the rule lands, we're going to comply. And so, you know, I, when I gave my public comment in writing, I mean, that was the, what I ended on was whatever you do, you know, wherever you have discretion, the rule, please write the rule in the least restrictive way, you know, give people the most breathing room, you know, the ability to just run their businesses without being saddled with over-regulation I also um, suggested to OMP that just the amount of documentation being required on 30 plants or 500 square feet was just not rational. I mean, the reason that that kind of documentation for a license or to run your business is required on the adult use side is because you have almost unlimited capacity to grow your business. You're dealing with huge amounts of cash and product and you know it's very different than somebody who's running a small caregiver business even somebody who's running a medium-sized caregiver business um it's just you're with trying to put that amount of regulation on the caregiver program is definitely putting a square peg in a round hole um i i think you know hopefully we'll get a reasonable rule i hope i hope it doesn't put people out of business if anybody feels like that's going to happen to them i'd love to talk to them and see if we can sort of uh, just reassure sort of them reassure them i mean we take, there is a path do yes. people need reassurance right now in that sense yes this I, will exist this you're the will first continue. person i've seen yeah or i've heard of that's like actually instilled some confidence in this like that there is a light at the end of the tunnel i get accused of being a shill for omp because i, <laughs> I don't take a super negative stance um you know we're from georgia initially mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean that we're prohibition still reigns. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a very cannabis-friendly state. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, you know, I mean, we're former criminal... We, we are criminal defense lawyers. I'm a former prosecutor. So I've seen the dark side of prohibition um, and just its impact. And so being in Maine overall is a breath of fresh air when it comes to cannabis policy. But I do understand my perspective is different than somebody, like I said in the beginning, who's worked, you know, a decade or more in the industry building building a cannabis business when it was really hard to do that. Well, and also there, you're talking about a community of people who sincerely want to be compliant. The mm -hmm. desire to do things out in the open, like the way that whoever is going to tell you this is how it's got to be. You're talking about people who want to comply. 
Sure. But it, it's got to be a reasonable scheme mm -hmm. that you want to impose. It's such like it's yep. it's such a weird environment though because it's like you want to comply, but then there's like these unwritten rules and um, you know of the of the cannabis game in a sense where the only way for everyone to kind of comply and to be able to make money is that the OMP is on the same side as the caregivers and the caregivers, you have some that really want to play by the rules and you have the select few, like the bad apples that kind of spoil the group. But then the whole like identity of a caregiver is being slightly lawless in a sense. And so they don't want to turn their backs on their comrades that may be a bad apple or whatnot. So it's like it, in some of the new language even suggests that of that you wow. need to make reports or file reports against things that you I think you'll see seat. some clarification on that. Mm -hmm. um, that that rule as written had super bad optics. I mean, it is in the law, but I've, I hope it'll be rephrased or clarified so that there should be a certain level of self-regulation within the industry, though. I think there. I think that naturally. And I'm not necessarily exists. against that. Yeah. Here's where I think where I see it most often is with odor mitigation. I see neighbor helping out neighbor, and when towns, I know when we worked in one town and odor mitigation was a big deal and you know the a lot of the cultivators in the community where we're trying to get adult use them to opt in for adult use said hey tell me who they are i'll go bring them a carbon filter you know one cultivator to another saying hey let me see if i can help mm -hmm. um and so i see a lot of self-regulation there um and and i think that's really important because odor is like the number one issue for most of these towns and so seeing um operators give each other a helping hand on that I think is good because some people are better at it than others and some people understand odor control more than others um, and some town council people are have ridiculous standards yeah so you, how does, is there like a, a there can't be any like unit of measure is there a unit of measurement for odor no. no it just has to is it on a complaint basis essentially or yeah I think a great example of a town sort of dealing with odor would be Scarborough. Um, they actually hired an odor mitigation specialist and brought them out to uh, Pine Point to Snow Canning Road. And because, you know, there are a lot of neighbors who move to that area and they'll complain about odor. And so, but also they do like fish processing there. It's like, which odor are you complaining about? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good point. So um, they really wanted to understand it. And I think now they really do. They're actually installing a weather station so they can see which way the wind blows. So if they get complaints from one area and the wind's blowing a totally different direction, they know, hey, this might be a false complaint or an overstated complaint. Um, so while I, I don't know, I'm not a smell expert, so I don't know if there's a unit of measurement. There isn't. That's my issue, but that there's, there's no quantifying what it is you're complaining about. You can't say that it's like tent on a window that obstructs more than this much light right. or that it's sound, that it's a certain decibel level. Yeah. You can't quantify this. Very and, subjective. And frankly, the hilarious thing about what Jill was just explaining is if you lived in a place where you could choose between what would be the dominant thing you smelled when the wind blew, would you pick fish processing or cannabis. Right. Well, I'm going to go A, fish processing for $100. <laughs> well, and for me, like if I lived near like a Subway sandwich shop, I would have a real problem. I don't like the smell of a Subway sandwich shop. Like <laughs> everybody has their things. And that's my example all the time. Like I would be complaining all the time. Um, There's certain fast food places I yeah. drive by that uh, some of them I really like the smell right. and others I'm like, right. why you do that? Is that why there's probably a little bit more of a, of 
the thought going into where are we going to zone these places? Because essentially then at that point you can the the thing should be, well, you shouldn't have moved next to the one zoning area where we allow cannabis grows, you know, just like if you don't yeah. like subway, don't move next to a subway. Exactly. The subway is already there. That'd mm-hmm. probably exactly be the right. biggest uh, uh, lesson for towns and, and cities that do open up to it down the road is have the proper zoning going into it. Yeah, absolutely. That way you don't have to oh, worry about that as much. As, don't you worry. Yeah. The towns, believe me. Uh, They're the, watching, the towns they know. know how to zone it. Um, uh, Auburn's done, I, I don't know much Auburn's about it. Auburn's done a great job. Yeah, just from driving around and seeing where I know that grows are, it does seem like the, Auburn has done a really good job about mm-hmm. placing them in areas where you're not going to get residential complaints. Yep, and I know Biddeford has really wrestled with odor mitigation. They have a really strong ordinance, and that's a great place to start is with a really strong ordinance. And just sort of setting an expectation like Scarborough has, like I'm sure you know most other towns have, mm-hmm. that the expectation mm-hmm. is, hey, you're going to pay attention to this on a daily basis and kind of do a smell check mm-hmm. and you know be a good neighbor. I mean, I listened to a meeting in one of the towns and one of the counselors, she was so sharp. She just said, we have a nuisance law. We don't need a separate odor. You know, why are we putting layers on this because it's cannabis? You know, let's treat it like any other nuisance. Yeah. And that's that's smart governance. Uh, you know, you don't need a whole different program to address what essentially is just a nuisance like any other. But, right. you know, as, as more towns opt in and as time goes by, hopefully we'll see more reasonable um, regulation. You know, I think some, these towns dip a toe in the water and, and uh, it's new for them. Um, you know, I think... When I talked about Portland with you earlier, I, I definitely don't mind expressing frustration there. Andy and I are Portland voters, so we, we are allowed to have an opinion, um, <laughs> which we will <laughs> exercise. But, you know, I'll say this about Portland. Whenever marijuana has been on the ballot at the local level in Portland, it has always passed by large numbers. Right. And in, throughout most of 2019 and into 2020, as they're putting all their regulation in place, we would go to these meetings and... You know, they, it was just such, what they have proposed is such a high level of regulation, extra requirements, you know, security bonds, like the transportation requirements, having cameras on the car and two people in the car and extra signage requirements for retail and just really treating it like it was toxic poison. Um, even when their signage came out yesterday, uh, the required in-store signage has the poison control number on it. Um, it's like, what is really? that? Yes. If anything, give him like a, a, a um, number of a health professional or something. Well, Poison it's like control. in case it's ingested by pets or children um, is what that was about. But, you know, it's their, uh, the attitude to, in my opinion, um, and I am from away, uh, so I don't have a deep history in Portland, but just based on my observations, there's, there's a huge disconnect between the people running that city and the voters, um, where the voters overwhelmingly, you know, lifted the cap on retail stores and reduced the setback from 250 feet between stores to 100 feet between stores. It wasn't even close. And legalization in 2016 passed by a wide margin, even when it was a close vote statewide. So, you know, I sit in these meetings and I just think I'm not sure who these folks think they work for. Or right. who Could, they represent. Yeah. Almost like a sense of elitism. Like, yeah, they voted it in, but we know better than them. And that we're going to make sure that, that, you know, they don't, they're not their own worst enemy. We're here to protect them as the almighty Correct. government. Are that they stalling exactly it? Right. They're just making it very difficult on a lot of fronts. We've had a couple people on the show before have been fairly outspoken about how it's been a process, not I st- an easy one. You know... I struggled to be able to identify the source of it 
within city government. Yeah. Um, and I'm not one who believes in a lot of conspiracy theories about government because that would take so much effort for the government to pull off conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. I've worked they for don't government. Work that hard. Yeah, I've worked you know, for the government. The conspiracy theory um, thing might just come from we think there's competence, full competence on the other end of that. Yeah, right, I, you almost give them too that's much why the credit. Theory, right, that's why right. the theory of you know conspiracy theories have no validity. You're giving them credit for not only being very smart, but being very motivated. And at the same time, on the other end, people insult him for being morons, but then they think yeah. they've pulled this massive heist. But, you know, so. there are, I've had some great interactions with Portland government. I don't want to totally sure. trash them. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so don't edit this part out. They No, I, I, I definitely know that it's been a lot of hard work um, for them to take this on with everything else going on in Portland. Um, Portland deals with a lot of issues that no other town in Maine deals with as yeah, far that's true. as, you know, the unhoused population and um, sort of the civil unrest that has gone on, that went on throughout 2020. and The size um, alone, the too. The size alone and just... It's unique. They, mm -hmm. yes. Have they had to set up new task force or, or within the city? They have, I think, based on one of the referendums that the voters voted on, I think they had to set up a task force. So they're dealing with a lot of challenging issues. And then on top of it, figuring out how to um, allow weed stores in the old port. I mean, so I, I yeah. definitely don't underestimate the Herculean task it is to regulate cannabis in the state's largest city. Right. Um, but I also think, you know, move it along. I don't think they're, I, I don't anymore think they're, they're stalling. Um, I just, I definitely think there's forces at work that are maybe above my pay grade or, you right, know, <laughs> right. that I don't know about. Um, I think it's hard for city government to get out of its own way generally. A lot of times. Just mm -hmm. no, no matter what Almost we're Almost overthinking about. everything yeah. in a sense. It, it just what you said though, Jill, too, we noticed a big shift with towns like Portland and the old port. And this is just another thing of how cannabis is benefiting. There's a lot of bars that are closing down. We shrank that footage in between 100 feet. We know that people are going out to buy cannabis right now. We know that there's going to be vacant spots because there are places that are closing that just cannot survive anymore. Oh, so I, I say that all the time. That it, anybody looking for a Portland retail store, you may you may luck out. And be right. Able to pick Now's up the a, time almost in a sense. Unfortunately, pick up a, a spot that a failed business occupied. And um, that, that's sad. How's that been affecting that area? Uh, how bad uh, is it starting to... Has well, it been a common theme I haven't been down in the Portland area to speak of lately. I mean, well, I, I, How's it changed in the last, the, it's really, the landscape? Yeah, it's really hard. Um, we live right on Congress Street in the West End and, you know, chose that area because we could walk to bars and restaurants and yeah, not right? shut down for You want to be in the places that that's um, what Portland's great for. Our neighbors, mm -hmm. own, <laughs> our neighbors own some of those bars and restaurants that mm -hmm. are suffering. And I've been really impressed. That's one of the things I think I was... I have been impressed with Portland about was offering the curbside dining option and getting those permits processed um, pretty efficiently um, so that throughout the warmer season they could have outside dining. And, yeah. um, and that I know was a big effort for the city, but yeah, businesses are shutting down and, and you're right. And I think, you know, I, I, we haven't talked about it, but we've touched on it. The fact that, you know, cannabis has been medical cannabis has been deemed essential and that that was a huge deal for the industry in 2020. Mm, I mean, very. the caregivers as a group have never had more clout. Um, the, what, 250, 220, 260 $260, million, dollars, yep. $260 million mm -hmm. in tax revenue. It's the number one agricultural crop. You know, the industry, medical can caregivers 
operate relatively without incident. Are there issues from time to time? Sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But for 3,000 caregivers, you know, at least as far as I can tell, it runs relatively without incident, and it should be a model for adult use, not sort of considered, oh, we need to fix medical to be more like adult use. It's really the other way around. As much as I want to rejoice, though, too, sometimes it almost angers me when it's listed essential because I think of like some of my friends that were like barred from it for something so simple. And now you see people doing millions in dollars of revenue a month. And it's like some are essential and some are criminal, you know, and that's what really I think is like it is it's it's like a time of celebration for sure. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But it's also a time for like reconciliation and like thinking about how did we get here and, you know, whose shoulders are we standing on and how did we get to this point that we're at? Because it's it's super important. It's like, yeah, it's it's a. It's frustrating, but it's also really cool to see that we have come this far. Oh, amen. That's a very thoughtful and considerate thing you just said, (laughs) realizing that you didn't mean to get somewhere this way, but you kind of walked over the bodies of the people who failed before you Mm -hmm. to get somewhere. Yeah. That's very valid. And, you know, I'll say, um, you know, whatever you want to say about the outgoing president, he pardoned a dozen cannabis offenders on his way out the door. One from Arista um, County, correct? I believe so. Yep. And, I mean, I think that's a huge statement. Um, I also want to mention Last Prisoner Project um, because I love them as a nonprofit. Um, they work uh, to end prohibition and to empty the jails and prisons of all the nonviolent cannabis offenders that are still serving sentences. Mm. So they were involved in the push for the clemency for this last group. Um and have had a huge impact um, on uh, criminal justice reform. And I really encourage retailers in Maine to take on Last Prisoner Project as a cause. I know Seaweed just did and was, Mm -hmm. um, at least today, the last time I looked, it raised $1,000 or more for Last Prisoner Project with a raffle. It's just a great organization that I hope will take root here in Maine Um, because you're right, everybody operating here either, you know, has had their own experience with law enforcement um, or, you know, knows somebody who has, but certainly the disproportionate impact that the federal prohibition has had on communities of color cannot be ignored. And, you know, yes, absolutely, we all stand on their shoulders. I mean, as far as where Andy and I sit, you know, I always think about, and we touched on it before, the lawyers who've done this work when, Um, Like in California and Colorado, before state bars like Maine had issued advisory opinions allowing lawyers to work with cannabis Mm -hmm. businesses. I think we just saw, was it North Dakota, South Dakota, that issued an opinion that said that lawyers could not work with cannabis businesses. So we don't take it for granted our ability to um, work with our clients. We feel really lucky about that every day. I often feel like, you know, like... You talk about Georgia, and, and yeah. that's how. And it, it reminded me too of a, uh, this woman. I will never forget her story. Her picture on the back of my iPad because it's just something that I think really grounds me. It's it's Tamika Drummer. She's forty six years old. She's serving a life sentence without parole because of less than two ounces of marijuana. And yeah. like it's stories like that that really put it into perspective of the. You talk about disconnect at state level. We're talking at a disconnect on a federal level of, of the differences between where how many states now say this is okay for medicine, but yet at the same time, there are many people that are serving life sentences or their lives have been completely uprooted and torn apart. We look at the Tastefully Bait crew. They were they were successful enough there that they could fight it, but they completely acknowledged how their life was uprooted. And if they weren't in the position that they were in, there is no way they would have been able to fight the government in that. 
Right. So it's it is. There's a lot of issues. I I'd like to turn it a little bit because I kind of got <laughs> didn't want to get too sad with it, but I, I wanted to talk a lot about um. Hold on one second. I forgot where I was going there. <laughs> yeah. There yeah. was um. Oh God, there was one thing I really wanted to bring up. It was probably something really good. I know. We'll we'll think we'll figure it out. Um. Yeah. Carrie, well, do you have anything real quick? Well, no. I might think of it. Yeah, no, I've been uh, trying to think of something offhand, and I just got caught up in what you guys were talking about, too. Well, it's a, a big there, deal. So. You know, I yeah. I met Andy when I was a prosecutor, and I had been a public defender for a really long time. And um, after an extreme act of violence in, in the courthouse where I was working, I um, moved to the next county over to be a prosecutor for a few years. And... You know, I only prosecuted felonies, so I didn't come across marijuana all that often. But the times I did, it was really hard. Um, I never wanted to prosecute it. I would reduce the charges every time I could or dismiss it every time I could. I remember these two kids who almost <laughs> almost forced me to a trial, like an actual jury trial. I mean, you know, and I was like, please don't make me do this. You know, do not make me stand up in front of 48 citizens and, you know, argue about marijuana um and fortunately we were able to work that out but just to clarify before you wind up with a jury of 12 you start with a big panel of 48 oh, or yeah. 60 as well. yeah right and it gets weaned down correct yeah and yeah. I, I remember standing in front of that jury because we started jury selection and you know asking them the qualifying questions and saying things like you know who on the panel thinks marijuana should be legal and 48 hands go up including granny and the preacher and yeah. you know i was in a <laughs> metro atlanta county and um that was that very much, if given the opportunity, would vote for legalization. But um, Georgia doesn't have a ballot initiative system. It'll have to come out of the legislature. But you, in that county, you couldn't win a marijuana trial. There's no jury that would convict. Um, well, there's a big difference between Atlanta and Georgia. <laughs> right, and the rest and, of Georgia, uh, as yeah. you saw I've on always, Election Day. I've always said, too, to Carrie, that the only other marijuana market that's going to open up that's going to be as big as Los Angeles is going to be Atlanta, Georgia. I the hip-hop scene, I mean, it is oh just... Do you agree with that? Heck yeah. Yeah. So, so now that we're sort of getting, we're more familiar with the industry. And when I'm in Atlanta and I drive around and I think, oh my gosh, that would be a great place to cultivate weed. Like I see buildings. Oh yeah. And right. Think, and then I think, oh, can you even imagine trying to go through the licensing process with the city of Atlanta? Like, you know, just knowing oh, like how, just how difficult that, that it might be, be a long ways out. But I, I will say in fairness, um, the whole metro area of Atlanta is treating misdemeanor marijuana possession very differently yeah. and most yeah. of the counties are no longer prosecuting They've it decriminalized. um they're not arresting people for it uh so they're not being as aggressive with how they're going to be only in the metro counties in the metro when counties. you leave atlanta you're in georgia in and you go the there at your cities. own peril i mean <laughs> okay. you know columbus gotcha. savannah i mean georgia has a lot yeah. of big cities I'm but making uh, but atlanta's the big city but it's really yeah. decriminalization which is just you know we're not going to lock you up for this. to yeah. legalization i think decriminalization what I think needs to be avoided as an interaction with law enforcement at all over mm -hmm. cannabis. And so even decriminalization isn't enough because you still can be dragged into court to pay a, a civil fine. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think citizens need to have that interaction. Um, what so would motivate the federal government to act in that direction? That 68% of Americans believe cannabis needs to come off the schedule. Like, at what point is it enough? Yeah. You know, I, you're, no, seriously. It was, I saw the statistic the other day. When Obama was president, the approval rating for legalizing cannabis was in the 40s. It's well into the 60s now. And, and seriously, at what point is enough enough where it's like the will of the people is what it is? 
I mean, the people have spoken on this issue. You know, we have 30, right. 30 plus states with meaningful medical programs. Um, I think 12 states now that are legal. Arizona, their time from ballot, ballot to legalization was a matter of weeks. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. unlike yeah, right. Maine, where it was, you know, years. But Arizona had failed once before. It had failed. And thanks to who? The prison lobby, the private prison that's, lobby. That's what I was going to bring Arizona. up is you said that you don't like to be a conspiracy theorist, but clearly there is some forces acting against why it hasn't been removed yeah. from the Schedule 1. The beer lobby, the alcohol lobby. Is hey, now really let's strong. not go blaming beer for things. Andy doesn't like when we blame beer. Uh, Hank Hill once said, "Don't go blaming the beer." Oh my gosh, the alcohol lobby spends a lot of money. The private prison um, companies spend a lot of money lobbying against legalization. Um, big pharma. Do we see big tobacco getting in that mix too? Or are uh, they actually on? They're poised and ready. I have all faith that. Uh, that they're waiting in the wings to be to bring mediocrity to cannabis as soon as possible. Oh yeah. Oh, like oh, to yeah. be. Yeah, they want. Yeah. They want. Marlboro wants to become a cannabis brand. Essentially, is what oh, you're saying. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, they're, this is what they do. They're cultivators. Yeah, I've heard mm-hmm. about that being um, the case, heading in that direction. You know, I think they would never of, do it as well. No, they of would never not. ever do it. I couldn't. As well. I couldn't see how it could be achieved. I really, I really couldn't. Do you think federal it. legalization could open a door that we can't close? Like, is that when we start welcoming in the FDA? Like, is all of a well, sudden, like, if, you're, say. if you're a medical <laughs> caregiver now, are you going to be governed by the FDA? Jill that's, has always said, be careful about said. inviting the government be, into marijuana. Be careful yeah. what you wish for, because I don't see a way around the FDA getting involved in medical cannabis if it's federally legal. Um, I also see adult use cannabis going to the ATF. Um, <laughs> Just about to say they, God damn. And so. <laughs> Same I, people that were dropping a helicopter on you right. 10 years ago. <laughs> I know. What goes around comes around. Wow. <laughs> um, but what I prefer, because I'm a big states' rights person and a big small, I'm you really into small government. government. Yeah, you wouldn't is, want federal government. In I just want them to take it off the schedule and leave it to the states. Yep. Um, right. Much like what's going on right now. Where that gets sticky is, you know, companies that want to operate across state lines. I'm not so worried about them right now. They, they seem to figure out ways to do it. Anyway. Yeah, that's their battle to fight. Uh, yeah, exactly. But what I want for our clients and for everybody is, is safe banking, um, primarily and access to mortgages and car loans and, you know, for your cannabis income to be considered legal income for those purposes. And I think that's a long time overdue. They're... They're, they're more than happy. I know this is trite, but they're more than happy to take our tax dollars, um, know. you know, and to deem, deem you essential, and yet you're not eligible for PPP funds if you need, had needed it. Not, not that I think any cannabis business really needed that in 2020, but um, even as a cannabis law firm, we wouldn't have been eligible if we needed that money either. Um, so, you know, I just want to see the, a fair playing field. That's all I ever want to see. For our clients, whether they be the clients we had as criminal defense lawyers or my clients here in Maine, um, and that's what I say all the time: the job is just to level the playing field. You know, I our smallest clients get the same level of everything that our bigger clients do, because we want the smaller ones to, you know, succeed just as be much. right where they want to be. Yeah, right. And it's really an amazing thing to see these small family businesses and to know that you know our clients' kids, if they want to go to college, are going to go to college on weed money. Um, to have clients say to us that it's the first time in their lives that all of their money's been safely in a bank account, um, that they can sleep at night, their taxes are paid. You know, they're just not worried about the wolf at the door anymore or law enforcement at the door anymore. That's what I want for everybody in the industry, you know, to just get 
banking have, banking have would be that gateway tax deductions that, yeah. that every other business has um so you know and i think the time's coming i i thoughts would, on cryptocurrency <laughs> <laughs> I don't know enough Could it? about it. Okay, uh, I don't know. We had somebody about who it. talked about it, and Evan's not feeling the vibe on it so much. But about what thoughts? I would. Oh, go ahead. About so, the Bitcoin, crypto. Well, I, I'm hesitant to throw this out there because I'm not trying to start a fight. But uh, just gut reaction. Avoid that. The same I way, like that. when you were a kid, your mom told you to look both ways before you cross the street. Mm-hmm. Just, just avoid that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> avoid, avoid just, what? Bitcoin. Yeah. Cryptocurrency. I, I oh yeah. Definitely know that there. <laughs> well, I agree with you on that, Andy. That's, my, yeah. that's kind of my opinion. There are operators in Maine that I see on Instagram talking about it. I just don't know enough about it. Um, I just don't know if there's enough to know about it yet. Like it right. seems like it's so mysterious. There's no like that. I don't know. Like. Yeah, and it, it's the like fact, the dark web. Like I want to know yeah, about that too. Yeah, I know. That's like the Silk Road. His court case. Do you look at the or his whole oh my God. legal battle? Yeah, I mean he. That's uh, that's a whole other wormhole. How do you get to the dark web? Oh God, we're on do this conversation like, again. Google this dark is two web. podcasts in a row. We're talking this. <laughs> Darkweb.com browser. You gotta go darkweb.com. Create an account. Okay, upload okay. a Facebook. <laughs> upload, upload a profile picture. Okay. <laughs> Well, all of this is mere speculation, and he's only expressing an opinion. This is not an informative statement about how to do any of this stuff. No, (laughs) I don't think there's an actual (laughs) darkweb.com. Right? Right. No, there's not. There's no, a I, sort of like a wormhole here. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then there's the dark web is the rest of the globe. I hear about it. I don't that's know what, where it is. That's the rumor. Mm-hmm. I see a lot on Reddit. So. <laughs> well, speaking of Reddit, too, have you guys been following it? A little off topic, but we got to go with it. You guys been following GameStop? Absolutely. Andy has. It's amazing. I didn't understand what was happening for maybe the first 24 hours of me, it. Me neither. I just thought, why in the heck? First of all, I thought... Wait a minute. There's still a GameStop. Yeah, right. right. My right. friend sent me that. That's what I said. I right. said, "What the hell?" I've got a grown son in his 20s that I remember taking the GameStop in the mall when he was like 10, <laughs> and yeah. thinking then, guys, you might want to start thinking about what you're going to do after this gigs up. Um, so I didn't understand what was happening at first, and then the shock of realizing people are pouring in to buy a stock just to screw hedge funds that have taken short positions in them. Was a, I, it was a bunch of Redditors, too. <laughs> never, right. I, I would never have thought they of that. They messed with them. That but was so cool. The screwed yeah. up part is, is that you have, like, the ultimate forces that be, like, Robin Hood. I think even, I don't want to say that, there's a couple banks that I think restricted, I got an email from yeah. Robin Hood, I haven't used them in a while. They just, they're not letting anyone do anything with their positions on GameStop right now. Wow. But that means if you want to sell it, you can't. You can't. That it's, because at some point, you'd think everybody would realize yeah, we screwed the hedge fund guys who wanted to short it because when we all bought it, the price of it went up. But we're all stuck holding something that as a company really doesn't have a lot of value. Maybe I'd like to sell this. They said you can cancel. <laughs> I'm, not sure the, I'm not sure how it works. Robinhood said they'll allow you to cancel your position, but they're not going to allow you to buy anymore. So they're trying to stop basically the screwing okay. of the hedge funds, which is like... That's it, awful. Oh, it's uh, really bad. And there's been a couple... Uh, a couple of house members that I think have said they're, they'd be they'd entertain you know a uh, an actual you know an oversight committee to look right. at what's going on here and how is Robinhood and other apps like that investing apps basically stopping retail consumers from making these purchases you know so yeah it's interesting times for sure social media is the devil <laughs> it's an amazing thing though and real yeah. I, I had no idea and there were the other uh, stocks that were part of it too. Um, is it AMC or a- AMC? Is that like the movie chain? I think so. Yeah, it's gotta chain be. And, yeah, um, movie theater chain, right? And um, there was an airline stock too. 
All, all from all Reddit. This yeah, is cool. all from Reddit. <laughs> That's and, and, but if you look at what they did, it's brilliant. I don't even know who came up with the idea and put on the effort, but to say, we know that hedge funds work by doing the same thing as the, the joke about dude who goes to the baseball stadium every day and he's got umbrellas and sunglasses for sale and he's always going to sell something. So the hedge fund's supposed to do some kind of voodoo that says even when the market's bad, we'll get some kind of return. We'll look closer at that. Part of what they're doing is they're taking short positions and losing companies. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily a savory thing to do. It's not, you know, or it, it's not illegal, certainly. I mean, it's, it's a, an, an investing strategy. But the idea that somebody would look at large players who take these giant short positions and think, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to make that unprofitable for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it was explained to me. Well, yes, but the thing is, on a short position, your losses are unlimited. Mm -hmm. On a, a stock, what, what's the, uh, I don't understand options. I, I, I'm really not that bright. But uh, one of them, <laughs> you have an option to buy something at a certain price by a certain time. And the other one, you sell it. And on a short option, you, you basically borrow it and then sell it. And then you're going to buy it back at a profit and give it back. So if the idea is there's no limit on how high that stock could go, your losses are unlimited. So <laughs> the, the short. Yeah, so what they've done to these hedge funds who then, and this is supposedly what spurred some sales of other equities that you think, why are these institutional investors selling things off that are doing well? Because they had to cover these unforeseen and un ungodly losses right. on what were supposed to be strong short positions. So you're saying that Robinhood and other apps are basically limiting them because if people keep buying, the short loss can, or the loss from shorting it can be astronomical, can continue to climb as people continue to buy. It can, and at the same time, uh, you've got more and more people piling into something at an increasing price that's essentially worthless. Right. Um, I shouldn't say worthless. Um, I, apologies to GameStop. <laughs> but, it, but it's not worth what You're it's trading for. You're missing their new concept you know? they're rolling out. Yeah, 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 you are definitely off the email subscription chain at this point. They are canceling. Well, it's called it, Game it, Over. It, you know, <laughs> it's called Game Over. It's rough, but I, I'm way outside my... Uh, no, my no, now. I love it. I love it. Roll with it, brother. Keep going. I'll, I'll do it. We wanted to talk a little bit about like the infrastructure of OMP because in the conversation, obviously I was confused. I think Kara's confused. I think a lot of people are confused that it really wasn't uh, OMP that made these laws or enacted them or they're really just enforcing the duty that they were given. These laws had already been voted in by the legislature, or the yep. local government, in 2018. So, what is the infrastructure of the OMP like? What are well, and its responsibilities and stuff like that? Yeah. So, only the legislature can make law, and the mandate of any regulating agency, so OMP included, is they do have rulemaking authority to make rules based on their interpretation of the law. So, where it gets wonky is. You know, if, if their interpretation is wrong or oversteps or inadvertently or purposefully creates law. And so when we talked before, I used the example of the security camera and the proposed requirement that it hold 45 days of history, which um, would be burdensome on caregivers because then they can't just buy something off the shelf at Best Buy because Consumer Solutions max at 30 days of history. So 
at that point you're in a commercial security system. So arguably that wasn't in this in the uh, law and that perhaps OMP overstepped with putting security regulations in place that, you know, really created law as far as what was required there. So they got a lot of pushback on that section. Um, you know, there were many other sections that they got pushback on where people thought they made law. So their job is to put a regulatory framework in place and they're authorized to do that um, and to only do that in the way that the statute allows. So another great example of that is the 500 square foot plant designation. And people are like, what is this wacky thing where I can cultivate in 500 square feet, but if I grow more than 30 plants, I have to pay for them, you know, at a rate of $240 for every six plants over 30. Well, the reason is because OMP is not authorized to um, issue a caregiver license and charge based on anything other than plant count. They can't just all of a sudden say we're going to charge a flat fee for 500 square feet. That requires a legislative fix, and I think there's a, a bill. I know that the coalition has a bill proposed to bring it to 1,500 square feet max, and I think OMP pro maybe has a bill to put a fix in where they can just charge for the 500 square feet. There is a tier, a tier one adult use license that's at 500 square feet, the little craft license. So it does exist on the adult use side. Um, Has anybody signed up for that? I think there are a few tier ones. On are the there? List. I'd have to look An online. adult use, yeah. I think it's a great way for anybody interested who wants to maybe keep their medical business and start a little adult use who maybe has a strong little brand um, to go ahead and set up a craft grow and then kind of bootstrap your business into a higher tier class if you want to. Um, so... <laughs> The Office of Marijuana Policy started in spring of 2019 in February, and they were they're put into place by the executive branch, so um, by Janet Mills' office. So she appointed Eric Gunderson, and he's the director, and he's got you know a policy director. He's got the security director, um, who else? The licensing director. Um, so there's an infrastructure, a deputy director, an infrastructure that reports to him that are policymakers. They're the literal ones who are writing these rules. Mm -hmm. um, so the times where I have been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to give some direct feedback, we had the whole crew on the line. So we had the policy director and the director, deputy director, and everybody else uh, would, so that they could understand <clears throat> the feedback that they were getting. Some would say that people that are in the positions that they are on the OMP could be a little bit compromised by outside influence. It, should there be something that is prevent someone that could be considered a lobbyist or is representing cannabis firms, should they really be allowed to serve in a position where they could have outside influence that could affect their judgment on making the laws in favor of their current clients? I think this is really an interesting thing. Um, the people that I've dealt with in OMP came from other agencies or um, worked in government before. Uh, so I, I don't see anybody who's in, and I could be way wrong about this. I'm sure I'll take some heat for it. I just don't see that they're looking to enter the cannabis space in the private sector. Um, I understand the concern, and so maybe it is appropriate, like the bill that's proposed by the coalition um, where if they leave government service, they can't take a job in the private sector for two years. But I think um, defense contractors are a prime example. Like all government contractors, they're generally eligible to leave government employee and go into private practice. Certainly I was a government lawyer. 
Mm -hmm. um, and Andy and I both were public defenders. And as I mentioned, I was a prosecutor and we left government employee and um, certainly have built our careers on our government service and the experience right. we got there. I, I don't like any restraints on anyone. Um, so, you know, to have a restraint on the ability of somebody, a regulator at OMP to get a job in the private sector, I just don't know that it makes a huge difference. I don't know. I don't know if we care, though, about but, if yeah. people work in the private sector. It's more so should someone that is working in the private sector that is representing clients be able to govern or, or, or essentially oh, write rules sure. that, you know what I'm saying, that that could be yep. beneficial to their clients? Well, that's why I say, that's why I said before, we represent clients, not causes. Um, and that's why I'm always a little wary of lobbying, um, because mm -hmm. I may lobby for something that benefits some of my clients, but not all of them. Right. Um, and they may say to me, but you're my lawyer. And that is primarily what we are. We're lawyers that represent our clients. Um, and so, you know, I think if, I were asked to sit on the Cannabis Commission, I'd have to turn it down um, because I do see some conflict there, particularly if I were appointed, um, not that I'm going to be, but I'm just using this as an example. Sure. Um, that, um, like, if I were, if my job were specifically to represent caregivers, well, what about my clients who are in the adult use industry or in ancillary businesses that are tied to the adult use industry? Um, that's sort of, a, I would think, a conflict in their eyes. Right. Whether or not I can sit on the commission and just be objective and be fair and do the job right. doesn't matter. It's the appearance of impropriety for my clients, and, mm -hmm. and that would be an issue for my clients to raise. Um, and I say it all the time. Conflicts exist in the minds of lawyers and in the minds of clients. Um, and sometimes where we think there's not a conflict, the perception is really what matters. Um, and so we wouldn't take on something where one of our current clients might be like, you know what, that, it makes me uncomfortable right. that you represent so-and-so or that I heard that you were lobbying for this because I'm really against that. Mm. Um, and that's not a great spot to be in. So we just try to stay in our lane and represent our clients. Um, I think it is an issue for somebody sitting on the commission if they have a personal financial stake in the game. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know enough about how these political appointments go, whether or not disclosures have to be made or, or something like that. If it's all that deep, I don't know. Um, but I can definitely see how this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. I think there's two problems, the appearance of conflicts and the fact that the patient slot and the caregiver slot haven't been filled on the commission. Sure, um, it's weighing one, heavily one side, or at least the appearance of it's heavily one side. Well, and I don't know, you know, I've, I also feel like cultivation isn't represented as an entity, and the unique um, issues related to cultivators, whether you're medical or adult use, I don't think people, it's almost like... Caregiver's just too broad. Right. I just don't think they need to pit the two programs against each other. There shouldn't be somebody representing adult use and advocating for adult use, and then somebody else advocating for caregivers. We're all advocating for reasonable cannabis regulation. And the real, for me, I, where I see also a lack of representation are issues unique to cultivators, issues unique to testing labs, issues unique to extractors, and those, those making edibles. I mean, certainly... Nothing is more unique in the industry than people who are making edibles. Oh, yeah. Um, they have more liability issues. They have more issues with precision and dosing and labeling and packaging. And who's representing them on the commission? Nobody. 
and one caregiver cannot represent all of those interests on behalf of medical. Oh, no, not at all. And not one person can represent all of those interests on behalf of adult use, and certainly not... I would never be the right person to advocate because I'm not doing that every day for a living. I'm not creating edibles. I'm not, you know, working in a cultivation site. I'm a lawyer doing lawyer things, mm -hmm. and I don't walk in those shoes. And right. so while I obviously have more than a passing knowledge of what goes on in these sectors of the industry, it doesn't impact me the same way. Mm -hmm. um, I, can, I can speak to issues like security and things that broadly impact all of our clients. But when you get right down to it, issues that are specifically related to farming, I, I'm not the right person. So I think there's a lack of expertise available to the Office of Marijuana Policy. I will say, you know, a lot of people point to um, the out-of-state influence in the rule writing uh, via the consulting contract um, with the consulting firm that advises OMP, and I can get behind that. I don't know why in a market as sophisticated as Maine's cannabis market, that we would need anybody from out of state to help us regulate cannabis in Maine. Mm -hmm. That's not so, something that needs outsourcing. Uh, that's right. Not at all. And I can yeah. 100%, both of us can get behind the idea that um, we don't need somebody from wherever, California, Colorado. Um, well, that's exactly who they... They do have right. somebody from Colorado. Reached out to. And I get that, like, right, like, the way I the give model, you see the attraction the previous model. I, the way we give props to the lawyers that came before us, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I have those kind of skills when <laughs> it was really the Wild West. Um, <laughs> I daydream now about what the job's going to be like when the federal prohibition ends. It's gonna, I'm like, is anybody going to need me? Uh, you know, it's going to be <laughs> like, I'll be a dinosaur. But anyway. What are your hobbies? I know, right? <laughs> Andy's finally going to get me a horse. Um, I've been hearing about this horse a long time. That's right. <laughs> well, so, how come no horse? Huh? I mean, What's right? going on? So we, I want to know now, what is like... <laughs> What is the next step for people? Like, what what steps should we take as far as how do we voice the opinion? And how do these changes occur? How do we get another seat added for a cultivator? Sure. How do we remove the people that have clear conflicts of interest? Do you interest? mean by process, Evan? Or, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, not by force. <laughs> well, let me no, first right. talk about um, the horse. Finishing no. <laughs> up the right, my dream horse. Um, let me first talk about sort of finishing up with the rule, which is they're going to put out the final version. There will be a public hearing. It's going to be by Zoom. And so um, there are going to be different rules for signing up for public comment. So I just really urge everybody to pay attention. I think it's going to look a little bit like having to sign up in advance by 5 o'clock the day before. Um, and if you don't, it's going to be up to the chairperson of the committee hearing it, whether or not they're going to allow any additional speakers on the day of. So, And you can always submit written public comment. But if you want to be heard right there in committee, um, at the public hearing on the rules, just make sure you keep an eye out uh, on Instagram or the organizations that you're affiliated with because there's there's going to be limitations on the number of speakers. They're not going to be able to accommodate 1,500 people giving oral public comment. Right. So if it's important to you, you want to make sure that you um, sign up according to whatever the protocol is in place. I saw it in a he kind of a heads up uh, related to all public comment with the legislature that we got in a bar newsletter. So I knew it was going to apply to these cannabis hearings. Um, so and then as far as, you know, taking on some of, I guess, the weightier issues or the, you know, the things about the structure of things, 
Every, I think everybody interested in these issues needs to find their champions in the legislature because they sponsor bills. And again, back to the organizations that are working um, in the community, you can definitely streamline the process for yourself by aligning with one of these organizations and financially or um, by writing letters or in any way they ask you to to support them as they move forward to lobby for you know, the seats on the commission or removing conflicts of interest or um, to kind of fight these proposed rules where they overstep. Uh, let them do the heavy lifting for you and you can kind of support them and keep an eye out on their newsletters. But everything that the caregiver community is doing is having an impact um, for sure. It's, it's, they're definitely being heard and the feedback has been heard and absorbed and responded to and um, we're not going to win on every point, but we're going to win on a lot of points. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it's about. Yes, I mean, and it's all going to be okay. Uh, everybody out there is a very sophisticated operator already w working under really challenging conditions. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not more challenging today than it was <laughs> before it was legal in Maine or when people were dealing with cycling the fifth patient. I mean, think about how cumbersome it used to be and the opportunities created by the law that changed in 2018. Yes, I'm very glass half full about it. I am. Um, I think we're going to get some long overdue clarification, and it will help people continue to scale their businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and all of these caregivers have adapted to all kinds of things along the way. Um, and I, we can all agree it needs to be fair and the least restrictive environment possible. But ultimately, you know, every, there are some really talented people out there, talented business people and growers and extractors and edibles makers, and they're all going to be just fine. Um, you know, I, I think the edibles people are a great example because they have already have a level of um, regulation that the rest of the industry doesn't. Mm -hmm. La labs and edibles makers, because mm -hmm. they're accountable to other departments of state government, um, like Department of Agriculture for the edibles folks. And so they have multiple levels uh, because they make food. Mm -hmm. um, and and have to get their commercial kitchen certified and all these things. So they're used to it. You know, they're used to having to pay attention to the details. Should those who are in edibles be concerned about any laws that might uh, change uh, about in-house or in in-home kitchens? Um, I'm 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 not familiar with anything specific to in-home kitchens. Okay. I think one of the big discussions is around nutrition panels. Mm -hmm. Um, which would be a big deal for people creating edibles, a, a big expense. Um, and, of course, the use of the universal symbol actually on the product itself and having to get molds for that is a big expense. And so, you know, packaging and labeling issues for edibles are always a big, a big deal. Um, so I think those things impact them more than other parts of the industry. Mm. I also heard some stuff about uh, in making it more difficult to like obtain a medical card yeah yes um they got a ton of feedback on that that was like section three about the uh, bona fide provider patient relationship thing um, hopefully we'll see some revision there uh, that was a big red flag i think for everybody it really gave me pause i work with one of the people that um writes medical cards and it would have had a huge impact on that person um, and again, the, this is something that's been operating without incident, people being able to, you know, easily get a medical card um, for any reason that they and their provider thought that cannabis could assist. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't agree with anything that restricts patient access at all. Um, and people need to be able to get cards in the same reasonable fashion that they always have been, including these on-site events at both dispensaries and caregivers. Well, those are huge. It's patient great. relations mm -hmm. as well for the stores, for the caregivers. Oh, yeah. Because they make events. Uh, well, not anything large, but I knew that when we'd have in-store uh, attractions or nights, you'd pair it up with a medical card night. You get renewals, you get new people coming in, people who are like, hey, they need they need to know that they can access it that way too. Right. They have to have that availability. Have a medical provider who will walk around the store with you mm -hmm. if you want to and, and right. really give you true medical um, input about your use of cannabis. And that's one of the things I think is so great about those on-site events, other than also making it easy to get the card. Yeah. Um, it's an so, actual consultation. Yeah, you can get an actual consultation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I didn't love Section 3. That was a big red flag for me as well. I hope we're going to see some change there. Um, it gave me a lot of concern. It is. I'm, I'm not. I'm sorry. I don't know a lot about Section 3, but hearing you talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it was the one so that I'm, Evan's referring to. About, about the medical card. Medical no, I knew cards. that. And it just had all kinds of language in it. About, that was pretty like intimidating, I think, you know, for people. people who write. It almost made it seem like you would have to get that from your primary care physician. And I think we all realize still that that's you know, not a lot widely of, accepted a by lot medical of institutions. Right. I mean, I don't think they can. They have like federal DEA numbers and can write prescriptions. And yeah. I think they're not going to risk that by involving cannabis in their practice. And but, so that's a big problem. Mm. And it also reverses, you know policy that was behind changes in the law in 2018 where they said you know you can write it for they took away the list of qualifying conditions and right so to me which was huge yeah and to me that was just a big reversal on that and seemed to really try to narrow the scope of the medical program and who was going to be medical patients they had to do that at the same time though as uh, more stores were starting to open up they had to make it where I don't think they had an infrastructure in place that was going to be able to handle it, let alone it was very very tough to find nurses for a while, you know, all through yep. nurse practitioners who could help out stores, and let alone the qualifications. And it was, then it became much more of a process. They're, they seemed to streamline a little bit through a couple different points, adding in addiction, I believe, is something that uh, was a big, big benefit, big help. Um, but when we'd have med card nights for a little while there, there were like, um, you know, back pain is one of those things you could talk about, or spasms, on nausea, um, anxiety. anxiety yeah. So those were key points. And, and I mean, if you think about it, if <clears throat> when I use it, there's a lot of those reasons why that comes into play. Sure. And it is beneficial and it is medical. So it seems very broad and generic but it really does apply to, I think people are going to use it if they want to use it. So give them a healthy medical option to use right, it. Right, that comes with, you really. know, child-proof packaging and a warning label and a safe environment and it's clean. And You know, I think most people, even though they're not required to, most of the big operators are testing their medical product. Um, so, you know, I think the program really has been a model mm. and should continue to be that. Um, but I do, I see all sides of that issue. I understand why they might want to narrow uh, the medical cards to who they believe are true medical patients. 
um, to try and maybe you know move some people over to the adult use side. Mm. But I don't I don't know I don't know that the regulators need to get involved with why or who, um, and let people make their own choices there. Yeah, they should let them make their own choices. I I do have one one more question I'd like to ask is so that. The moratorium for social clubs is up in 2022, correct? I know. So where does that leave us? Like, how does, how do, what can we expect? Can they push it back even more if they want to? Or can you just kind of walk through? Because there's a lot of people that are kind of looking at that and saying, well, what can I do? I don't think they can moratorium it again. Um, it's going to be the same. It's going to be up to towns to opt in. Yeah. And that's where you're going to have problems. They're the defaults and opt out. And so it's going to take that first town. And there are towns that will do it um, for sure. Um, so there's got to be that first town that says, you know what? Is we're it going to be more it. towns, towns? Is that where you're going to see it? Um, uh, smaller in population, so. smaller in scope. Yeah. You know, or maybe, maybe ones that have been more near the ski areas. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, that are a little more remote and I guess adult oriented. I know kids ski. I'm not naive, even though I'm from the South. I, I think kids ski, but oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, about some of the areas that are so tourist intensive where it might make sense because otherwise they're smoking weed in parking lots and in their rental car and mm-hmm. um, in the hotel. Um, You're giving probably, people access to something and then giving them no place no to place. consume it. They're probably going to try to avoid putting it in, in a, like an area that's uh, congregated with a lot of bars you know, or, or serving like alcohol and stuff like that. Because oh, the of the irony of yeah. that. <laughs> I don't know if they would do that. Well, I mean, they're probably going to want to avoid... Like uh, you smoking at a social club, then going into a bar, vice versa. No, right, right. Yeah. Okay, yes, I'm sorry. I if, misunderstood. If you. I yeah, were right. Portland, I would proudly want to be the first to regulate social clubs. I mean, mm. no, I see the move oh, of it, I but know. I could also see the argument against. I Although I tell you, if I had to pick between them, I'd rather see somebody leave the social club and go to the bar than leave the bar and come into smoke. And come into the yeah. weed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's no, 100%. Yeah. But you know, there are laws in place for that. I mean, you know, the, the state law and the local ordinances always say you can't serve people who are visibly intoxicated. Right. Um, of any substance so it's up to the operators to operate responsibly I would love to see social clubs in the old port I mean oh, yeah. how amazing with and anywhere else um, winter is long people like to gather that's right yeah um, that's right and if you've experienced it um, the only place we've experienced it would be in Amsterdam and and it's just a really fun experience to share that with other people. Oh, it is. A, it really is. You, you travel know. with a group or you yeah. meet new people there. You meet people and you're like in that crazy. Space. And you have that thing in common. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at least before the pandemic, you could sit down and share with people. And, yeah. you know. And it, we did. And we did. And <laughs> it's very communal. It's, it, it really is. is. It and really I, is. I think that's sort of the nature of the industry itself is mm. for it to be communal. Um, you know, sit down and have some kind of comfort. That's why I think you know? we embrace it a little bit. Like yeah. we're really, I mean, it is livelihood, but it is communal too. There's a lot of really cool things that, I uh, mean, yes. if you look at it from what could come and what the people would want to do who are in the industry right now, say there were la- regulations or, or, you know, advisories would uh, lessen through the course of the summer and um, people would be able to, get together in what way and how and how much fun is that going to be? I mean, that's just going to be a rip. And I know a lot of these companies are chomping at the bit to have that chance to have that. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, places where it's a good fit, we say it all the time about Vegas um, because of, you know, gambling and all that, it's going to be a while before they can incorporate 
a federally prohibited substance into casinos or have a cannabis-themed casino. But how fun would that be? I mean, mm. that's like the dream. And that's why I say, love playing you know, cards with my buddies right? and smoking. Right? Like, Isn't that fun? Cool. Yeah. Isn't that just fun? Yeah. yeah, hanging out at the ski resort or you know, hanging out down by the water. Um, I think Maine's built for it. You know, it's all nature. Um, it yeah. is just to be able to hang out um, outside or even inside in a safe space and be with people. I yeah. hope the time is coming. Yeah. But it is because you know the moratorium will end and. And we'll see. Somebody will make it happen in one of these towns. Maybe, I think it's going to happen in a lot of towns. That's maybe what even, I think it's going to happen to. Yeah, maybe Auburn. So. Been an early adopter. That's what I was thinking, too. Ones that have been classically like a, more yeah. favorable to cannabis. Yeah. Places that made it clear that they welcomed caregivers as businesses and as people. Mm -hmm. And I hope we see delivery on the adult use side. Uh, you know, speaking of adding things, um, I think delivery has been shown to be a vital part of the industry. So I'd love to see that as an ad on, adult, on the adult use side. Hmm, interesting. I haven't yeah. thought about that. I didn't think it would be something that it makes sense. It would make sense for a lot of them because a lot of these businesses, if they don't have a storefront, well, Hazy Hill was on earlier. They don't have a storefront. I think uh, Sky Tide is somebody who has a store, doesn't have, even though they might house their product at a particular location, but they don't have a storefront. Um, a lot of these people don't have right. Yet they incorporate delivery or had incorporated delivery as a major part. Yeah. Oh, if, delivery. So that would stop rides. them from going into the adult use, wouldn't it? If, yes. If as that business if model. If their goal was to be a delivery. And, you know, I think there have been some issues um, in Portland in particular with delivery drivers getting hurt and mm. robbed. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely issues around it, but that's the same as delivering a pizza. Yeah. I mean, really. Sort of. <laughs> it's run well, right. um, to the degree that you are clearly visible as somebody who's showing up someplace to deliver something valuable, and it's presumed that you also have yeah, cash on hand because cash, you're driving around delivering something valuable. But once they have banking and they can just be almost cashless, it'll, I think it'll help. I think if even the people who are going to be uh, stealing from, if you know, why well, I suppose if you're going to steal from or you're going to rob a pizza truck, a pizza delivery person, you're probably going to rob cannabis too, I suppose. But there, it's only a one transaction at a time, right? So it's right. extremely limited, or or right. feasibly, I think. I don't yep. know. I don't know the whole law, but and everybody does it by card or orders. Weed Maps has a great system for a lot of different companies, and it ties in with their websites, I think. Yeah, I love Weed Maps. So. Taking cash out of the equation does make it less dangerous to mm -hmm. be a delivery driver. Mm -hmm. Because even though you're still driving around with something of value, yep. I think you're less likely to be robbed because you're carrying weed than because you're carrying cash. Could that possibly work, then, if uh, delivery service, if they allowed it to be a non-cash transaction for the safety of the, of the process? Do you I think, think that would change great. it? Yeah, I mean, I, w I would love to see them But that would put it actually out there mean banking. Anyway. Yeah, they would have to have better access to banking. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I hope it'll come about because I think it's just been such a huge part on the medical side. Like, you know, if, if the issue is parity between the two programs and you do want people to go to the adult use side, then you need to have all the same features. 
you know, if people are really into delivery, they're not going to give up their medical card mm -hmm. because they can still get delivery. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the weather's really bad here and you want somebody <laughs> to bring you the weed. You want somebody else to drive when there's a lot of snow blowing. It's not just right. on the ground, it's blowing at you, it's blowing sideways. Somebody else can bring that to you. Right. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, guys. Yeah, thank yeah. you thank so you. much. Really good time. Thank you for having Appreciate us. It. it was wonderful meeting both of you. Yeah, it was fun. awesome. Thanks. Andy and Jill. Yeah, we enjoyed Appreciate it. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure.